echoes of the past. Adleisiair Gorffennol So my name's Thomas Jones. I work as a community archaeologist for the Pembrokeshire Coast National Park Authority. So in this podcast, we're going to talk about Nevin Castle and specifically we're going to discuss its history and recent findings based on excavations. So in terms of the the site, it's a, a scheduled monument. So it's a monument of national importance and this means it's got statutory protection. And so the site's owned by the Nevin Community Council and in partnership we at the National Park Authority try to help manage and maintain the site. And we do that by working with uh, CADU, who provide historic environment advice, and they're the Welsh Government's Historic Environment Agency, and also uh, Dr Chris Capel from Durham University, who's uh, an expert on the site and who led the more recent excavations and research at the site. The first thing to highlight about Nevin Castle is its really, really interesting and colourful history. Records suggest that Nevin, or Nanhever in Welsh, and the surrounding country of Chemais remained under Welsh control until the start of the 12th century. And then we start to see from that point uh, it going backwards and forwards between the Anglo-Normans and the Welsh rulers. In 1108, um, the area was captured by Robert Fitzmartin, and that was part of an Anglo-Norman conquest of Pembrokeshire. So it became part of um, Anglo-Norman control. And it's believed that Nevin was the secular ecclesiastical centre of Chemais. And presumably, this might have been the reason that uh, Robert established um, his castle there. So in addition to establishing the castle, records are also suggesting that he established a town on the site and also the Abbey of St. Dognall's. So following ongoing attacks by the Welsh, Robert Fitzmartin is likely to have lost control of Nevin following the Battle of Craig Mawr in 1136. And this is when the Welsh forces recaptured Ceredigion. From 1155 onwards, much of West Wales came under the control of Rhys ap Griffith, who's also known as Lord Rhys. It's likely that Nevin remained under his control until about 1172, when the site passed back to Robert Fitzmartin's son, William. Robert, by this point, had passed away. And interestingly, William was also married to Lord Rhys's daughter, Anne Harrod. So in 1191... When um, William Fitzmartin left for crusade, the Lord Rees then recaptured Nevin Castle. Following that, control of the castle sort of swapped hands between the Lord Rees and his three sons, Griffith, Maelgwyn and Hoel Sice. So interestingly, um, the Lord Rees was even held prisoner at Nevin Castle by his sons, and that was during 1194. And then when Hoel Sice eventually took control of the site from his brother Maelgwyn, by deception, he then released his father. And around this time, um, it was clear that the Anglo-Normans were going to regain control of the area. So in 1195, 
Howell Sice then destroyed the site by setting it alight, and as a result, he made it unusable for the Anglo-Normans. Um, so by 1204, the Anglo-Normans had retaken control of North Pembrokeshire, and this included Nevin and Nevin Castle. And at the same time as 1204, a new castle and borough was established at Newport, and it is at this point that Nevin Castle disappears from written records. So that gives you a little bit of flavour around the history. So you can see it going back and forth between the Anglo-Normans and there's a little bit of um, colour in there around the relationship between Lord Rees and his sons. Uh, the archaeological research which has taken place at Ever Castle, a lot of our information about the site um, comes from that archaeological research. Um, and this in includes so research and survey um, by archaeologists David King and Clifford Perks after World War II. And as a result of their research, they did produce a plan of the earthworks, and that was between 1950 and 1951. And then more recently, uh, between 2005 and 2007, geophysical and topographical surveys took place. Um, but unfortunately, uh, the, these surveys did not re reveal much new information about the site. So this was followed by a trial excavation in 2008 by Dr. Chris Capel of Durham University and Will Davis of Cadu. And this excavation demonstrated that there was a lot of buried archaeology from the early and later phases of the site. And this led to a partnership between Durham University, the National Park Authority and the Community Council to excavate the site up until 2018. And this was thanks to funding from both the Welsh Government and also the European Union. So in terms of what was discovered as a result of those excavations, they really did change um, our ideas of the layout of the castle. So in terms of the pre-castle period, so this is before Robert Fitzmartin establishes the first castle at the site, what uh, the excavation revealed was prior to uh, this period that there doesn't seem to be any evidence of a um, earlier settlement at the site. However, a single leaf-shaped flint arrow head was discovered. So it, is, it does suggest that prehistoric populations are passing through this landscape. So essentially, all of the earthworks at Nevin Castle are dated to the medieval period. So... This then follows that first establishment of what we could call the Conquest Castle, and this was constructed in earth and timber. So and it included a very small one metre high bank, and this surrounded the site, and there was probably also a ditch in front of this bank as well. And there was also a knot uh, which was constructed on the site, and within that there was a four-post wooden structure. So we're getting that evidence that, you know, that this site is earth and timber. And so the earliest phase of the castle, which goes with the story of Robert Fitzmartin taking control of the area, is dated to the early 12th century, and that's uh, 1108. But moving on from that sort of conquest castle, um, we then get the earth and timber castle and town. So again, the material is very much the same as in that earliest Phase. But what we do see at this period is we see these substantial banks and ditches 
um, which replaced those previous banks and ditches. Um, and we think that they're more substantial due to the increased military activity by Welsh forces. And the castle was situated on the west side with defensive features. And so this gave the area a triangular shape. And also you get this raised mott uh, located in the northwest as well of that section. And the entrance to the castle was in the southwest of the site. Um, the eastern area, on the other hand, has a defended area also, and it could be a bailey, but the uh, researchers felt it was more likely that this was a defended township, and that that entrance to that town would have been via the southeast. In addition, what you've got at the northern end of the site are the three banks. So you've got the outer, middle and inner banks that are acting as a defence for the site. And then sort of moving on then from that early 12th century phase of the site, we then come on to the mid 12th century. And this is where we start to get the structures on the site being constructed out of stone material. So at this time, the castle and town are combined into one space and the dividing bank between those two spaces in the former phase were um, dismantled and there was a partial filling of that bank. And the castle started to be built in stone. So what you get at this time on top of the mott in the northwestern section, you get this circular stone tower being constructed. And actually what's interesting is in order to accommodate the, uh, the tower, the height of the mott had to be reduced because the tower would have had two to three stories with it. So the tower was constructed using slate and some occasional glacial stone, and then it was bonded together using clay as the mortar. The first floor would have had the entrance to the tower, and this would have been accessed by an external wooden stair. There was also a basement or cellar as part of the tower as well, and this was accessed by a trap door in the floor. What's really interesting is uh, what I mentioned before about the Lord Rees being imprisoned. The researchers think it is likely that it's probably in this tower um, and in this cellar or basement that um, the Lord Rees was probably held by his sons. So in addition to the, uh, the tower, it's likely at this, at this period as well, we get the earliest phase of the Great Hall being built. And again, it would have been in the, in the same material as for the tower, and uh, this would have been located uh, near the southwest corner of the site. And the clay used in the in the structures, they would have come from the site because this is the natural subsoil in the area. So finally, the third building that we see getting constructed at this time, which has been interpreted as being a chapel, and this would have been built on the southern edge, um, but slightly to the east of the Great Hall. Um, and it would have also been in view of uh, Nevin Church. Um, what's interesting to remember at this time is the setting is very different. So if you visit the site now, you'll see there's trees on the site and you can't really see down to the village. But in the past, that would have been open and actually you would have seen um, that the castle would have been visible 
from below and vice versa. So in addition to the stone material during this period, what we also see is we see this substantial wooden palisade um, added to the middle northern bank, which would have acted as um, re-fortification for that section. It's not really clear who built the castle in stone definitively, but it did take place in the middle of the 12th century um, when the Lord Rees is likely to have had control of the site. And there is evidence that he built in stone elsewhere, so Cardigan Castle as an example. And we also see that clay is seen in later Welsh castles. So it's probable that Lord Rees was responsible for this initial stonework at the site. Staying with the same period, so the mid 12th century, we get further developments at the site. So accommodation and defences were expanded. We also get a stone entrance constructed through the bank, which is south of the Mott. So this is the western portion of the site. And this western entrance comprised a wooden bridge across the ditch, and then there would have been a walled passageway through the bank. Um, access was probably controlled by wooden gates in the passageway. The Great Hall was also extended, and uh, during the excavation, there was evidence of this large hearth at the centre of that uh, structure, and also an adjoining east hall was added. Uh, in addition, a curtain wall was added to the southwest corner of the Great Hall, and this was to protect the southwest corner of the site. So continuing with the same period again, um, we also see that the castle itself is expanded to include an inner castle on the eastern promontory separated by a rock-cut ditch, and this in a castle section is the area on site today where we find the remains of the former square tower. And within this inner castle, we also see the construction of a curtain wall around the um, rock outcrop. And we also see uh, what we call the North Hall being built in this section as well. So access to this inner castle would have been via a wooden bridge over that rock cut ditch. And again, the, the, the buildings and the, the curtain wall, they're constructed in slate and clay. Sort of going back to that point before about the setting, these constructions at the site uh, would have been designed to be seen from the valley below. Again, as I mentioned, there wouldn't have been trees as we see it today. So then sort of uh, moving on into the mid to late 12th century, um, what we see during this phase is we see the southwest curtain wall was demolished. And this was the curtain wall which was next to the Great Hall that we mentioned previously. And so this suggests that there's some sort of substantial siege taking place. In addition, we've got post holes in this section. So that's indicating that a wooden palisade was erected in its place. And this probably was to ensure that we had continued defence of that uh, section of the castle. It's also likely that the Western defences suffered attack at this time, and this uh, would have resulted in the loss of that Western entrance that we mentioned. And, and then following on from this, the castle wall went through some redevelopment. So uh, where we have this in the southwestern corner, 
we see the development of a rhomboidal tower, which is adjacent to that great wall, and that sort of replaces that southwestern curtain wall or the, um, the wooden palisade that had replaced it. And we also get, so we've, we've already mentioned that the western entrance uh, disappeared. What happens now is next to that rhomboidal tower, you get this new entrance to the castle um, happening at that southwestern end of the site. And then on top of this, we also see the curtain wall built on top of the western and also the middle northern bank. And these replace the uh, wooden palisade structures that would have been in place. And we also think that a substantial tower was built at the southern end of that curtain wall. And it's possible that a, um, a tower was also built at the end of the, um, the north east end of the middle north bank um, curtain wall and just highlighting again um, the uh, these were all constructed using slates and clay as the mortar so then coming on to the late 12th century um, what we see during this final phase is that the western bank was made much higher and much wider um, the southern entrance was redeveloped with gritstone, and um, we also see gritstone uh, appearing uh, more commonly uh, in other parts of the sites. And this gritstone is um, used with clay as the mortar. So the entrance uh, that I mentioned that had been redeveloped, this also included slate with uh, apotropaic symbols um, scratched into them. And essentially, the purpose of the symbols was to ward off evil spirits. So the use of gritstone or finely dressed square and rectangular masonry blocks um, with the clay as mortar suggests potential fusing of Welsh and Anglo-Norman building traditions. Um, as the finely dressed stone tended to be an Anglo-Norman tradition, while the use of clay was a Welsh technique. So gritstone was added to the Great Hall, east end of the East Hall, and also the chapel. So during this period, we also see this large square tower um, with the rounded corners being constructed. And this was uh, within the inner castle, and it uh, butted onto the earlier curtain wall. And possibly some of the uh, construction material in the North Hall was reused to construct this uh, square tower because what we see at this time is that the, uh, the North Hall has been partially um, dismantled. And it also looks like the rock cut ditch of that inner castle has been quarried much deeper, although this was only half completed and this was possibly due to a change in who controlled the castle. It's also possible that um, the reason that we see the, uh, the ditch becoming um, deeper is also because we're using that material for the construction of the square tower. So finally, we then get the castle destruction after all those phases of development. And as I mentioned previously, the reason this, uh, the castle was destroyed 
was to stop the uh, Anglo-Normans being able to use the site. And that was by Howell Sice. And again, just to reiterate, that happened in 1195. So the excavation demonstrated evidence to support these records. And we can see extensive signs of burning and also the walls have been deliberately demolished. Um, And this included slates that melted and fused together. And this indicated temperatures of over 1,200 degrees when the castle was burnt. In terms of finds or artefacts that were uncovered as part of the excavations, so they found pottery, including North Devon, and also a dovered gravel tempered ware, also a crescent lamp. They also uncovered a leather shoe that was dated to the 12th century, um, several stone artefacts, so the grit stone, querns, lithic projectiles, a nine men's morris board, and of course the apotropaic slate. In addition, some metals, so an iron knife, horseshoes, including the nails, spearhead, and a wool comb. They also um, uncovered some seeds, specifically fennel. And also they managed to extract oils and fats or lipids from some of the pottery. And this revealed that the type of foods that they were cooking and eating at the site is likely to be cabbage, sprouts and kale. So in terms of future development work at the site, This is something that is taking place as a partnership between the Nevin Community Council, the National Park Authority, Durham University, and also in consultation with CADU on um, some of the works. So this includes interpretation work, of course. There is interpretation on the site, but, of course, some of the way we perceived The the layout of the site has changed, so that is something that is currently ongoing. Um, We're also looking at some conservation work on the site, particularly the square tower, which um, is in need of some work, and also, of course, the ongoing maintenance of the site. In addition, Durham University are still carrying out their post-excavation analysis of the finds, and the final report is currently underway and will hopefully be produced in the next few years. And then finally, a version of the guidebook for Nevin Castle has been completed, and now we are looking at uh, how we can make that bilingual. If you did find this podcast interesting, um, you can find out more by visiting the Nevin Castle website, The site is also accessible and it's free to visit. You can either park down in the village and then walk up to the site. There's also some very, very limited parking next to the gate, which is the entrance to the site. You can also discover more if you want to do a bit more further research. And there's lots of uh, sites um, online that can help you with that, including Cogline, and also Alchulia, just to name two examples. Thank you very much. Cynhyrchir podlediad adleisiad gorffennol gan planed a'i ariannu gan arwain Sir Benfro. The Echoes of the Past podcast is produced by Planed and funded by Arwain Sir Benfro. Mm-hmm.